six-figure developer podcast the podcast where we talk about new and exciting technologies professional development clean code career advancement and more i am john calloway i'm clayton hunt and i'm john ash with us today is michael kennedy michael is the founder and host of talk python to me a weekly podcast about python and related software developer topics he is an entrepreneur a father of three girls a husband a student and a teacher welcome michael Hey guys, it's great to be here. An honor to be on your show. Thank you for inviting me. Why don't you tell our listeners how you got started in the industry? Not by direct choice. It was really interesting. So I was working my PhD in math, and I guess technically it was my between my senior year and graduate school, uh, my math programs. And I didn't see myself as a programmer. I loved computers and I loved playing around with them, but I didn't see myself as somebody who would be a good programmer. And I got into this research project working with these silicon graphics, mainframe, supercomputer things. And they're like, ah, we're all using this old other language. We need you to rewrite this stuff in C++ and OpenGL. We've nominated you. Here's a book. That's your summer project. Like, wait a minute, what? How, how did I get this job? And it was so interesting because a few weeks into it, I was just having so much fun and working. And then I realized there are parts where it wasn't so fun. And then it was really fun again. And the parts that weren't so fun were the math parts. I was like, uh-oh, that's weird. The parts I'm supposed to be working on are not the fun parts, but the programming parts are awesome. And I, that's when I kind of knew I, I, I probably should pay more attention to this programming stuff because I just loved it, even though I didn't you know, start down that path thinking I would actually go that way. Awesome. Um, so what are you working on these days? These days, I'm running an online business inspiring and teaching people Python. That means sort of a spectrum of things. So I have two podcasts that I run. You mentioned Talk Python to me. I have another one called Python Bytes, which is like an audio newsletter weekly thing, but with analysis. And then a bunch of courses over at Talk Python Training. And so my mission is to tell the stories of software developers, mostly focused in the Python world, but you know, branched out a little bit. And then for people who are super inspired, if they want to actually learn how to do some stuff, I have some courses for them as well. And I'm trying to just continue to round that out and bring more people into my mission, you know, working with other authors, writing courses, inspiring people to be guests on the podcast, things like that. Yeah, it seems like Python is is having it, it a resurgence these days. And, and a lot more developers are either rediscovering Python or renewing their love for Python or, or finding it for the first time. It's a little unexpected. Yeah. It's taken a lot of analysis and thinking about it for me to kind of understand why that is. I think I know now why it is. I'm not sure anyone conclusively knows for sure, but Python's interesting. It's It's been around for quite some time, right? It was released in 1991. It had been worked on, you know, in 1989, I think, Gideon von Rossum started working on it. So it's not like this brand new language. It's not like Go or Rust or something like that, and it just burst on the scene and took off, or like Swift potentially but it had been around for a long time and had been like medium grade popular until 2010 or so. And it just started to just take off. And now if you look at, you know, Stack Overflow trends, it's by far the number one language. And it's one of the few languages with a very strong upward 
a positive derivative rather than sort of trending down as more languages come in. I don't know that downward trend necessarily means the language is actually losing popularity, but there just could be more other to share its space with. But certainly Python is, is going up. I've done a lot of different languages. I've done C, C++. Like I said, my OpenGL example, uh, that's just like terminal compiling GCC doing OpenGL. Like that's that's a hardcore bit of programming that I was happy to stop doing when I could. I've done a lot of C Sharp. I've done JavaScript. I've done a little bit of Visual Basic. I've done a lot of Python. So I've, I've seen these different languages. I've looked at Java, but decided not to go there. And one of the things I think is super unique about Python is that you can be very productive and effective with Python with a partial understand, a quite partial understanding of programming at all and Python itself. So what, what I mean by that, like imagine I'm a biologist, right? And I've got a bunch of data I need to load up and process. And maybe I was using MATLAB or Excel or something that wasn't quite doing it. I thought, well, let me try this Python thing. I heard there's like a quarter million libraries that let me just pull in stuff to understand genomics or graphs or whatever, right? So that biologist, she might write five lines of code, load, you know, pandas, read CSV, do this other thing, pass it over to this and run that and come up with a really cool result. And that might not have a single function in it, no class definitions. I mean, consume them potentially, but not really thinking about like, oh, I wrote a, wrote, uh, you know, the, this set of interfaces and it maps over there and here's how I test it. And then this is the, you know, the abstract way in which we might override the algorithm. It's like, there's not even a function. There's no compiling. You just run it and out comes something awesome. And there's other languages like that that are simple. But the unique thing about Python is it allows you to grow into much higher order things. Things like C Sharp and C++ have like generators for for each for in loops. Um, you know, all those ideas of like object-oriented programming, but you don't have to know or care about them until you're ready. And so a lot of people who are getting into programming, they're like, well, how do I get in? Like, what is the simplest way? I probably heard this Python stuff's easy. Let me try that. And they get a little bit pulled into it. Then they're like, oh, I want to do a little more work. Maybe how do I pass something different to this script so I can you know, make it work on Monday different than Tuesday with data or whatever. And then you do a little more, a little more. That person who never, ever thought of themselves as a programmer, like, looks back two years later and goes, oh my gosh, I'm a programmer. How did this happen? And they've just been like pulled into the gravity well because they never had to leave to like a grown-up language that now is harder like C++ or C Sharp or something, but now is more capable, right? So I, I say Python's a full spectrum language because that biologist can be successful, but Instagram is also built in Python. YouTube, which does a million requests a second, is built in Python. Like it goes all the way to the other end with a few caveats, where you really can build amazing stuff. And so you don't have to leave that language, but you can start really easily there. And I think that puts it in a, a unique place. And much of that growth and those people coming in are coming from these like non-traditional CS, non-CS places. Yeah, I've um, I've tried to pick up Python a few times. Um, I can't I can't get past the significant white space uh, for for a long enough period of time to really get into it. But um, one of the drawing points that I thought was cool um, is is what you're talking about, where you can start off basically print hello world with no structure around it at all. And then, um, you know, you can build on that and learn more and more and more until you've got, you know, uh, Django, is Django Python? 
Yes. Anyway, you've got an app. Yeah, you've got a, you've got a complex application that's doing machine learning using TensorFlow or something, and right. and doing all kinds of crazy cool stuff. And you you know you started with this language that lets you just output something to the screen with no no programming knowledge. It's uh that's a really cool uh, feature of Python that I think is one of the big reasons why it kind of became the de facto um, college language. Yeah. Um, a few yeah, years ago. I, I agree, I agree. And by the way, for the significant white space, it's totally weird. It definitely takes some getting used to, but if you have a a smart editor, something that really understands it, it kind of automatically writes that for you. So that's that's pretty nice. Yeah, well, even, you know, like 10, 10 years ago or so, even stuff like PyCharm didn't necessarily give you the best indicator that the reason why your Python wouldn't <laughs> run was because you used a tab instead of a space or, yes, it was you horrible, know, vice yeah. versa. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but yeah, the modern editors are a lot nicer in that regard. It, it does take some getting used to, though. But yeah, I think I think there's a lot to it. What you're saying with this the simplicity, I think that's why it's being adopted. And I think it took me a long time to appreciate how much people who don't see themselves as programmers don't want to go into a complex programming environment, right? Because I'm like, that's it's not that hard. Just you know, compile it and run it. Like, come on, like, sure, you got to learn this syntax and it's like a star dash arrow, double star underscore. You'll get there, right? It's fine. But I've seen over the years interviewing people, so many interesting people who are coming from other places, um, philosophy, race cars, somewhere that is not programming. And to them, it makes a huge difference. And once you take a step down that path, you're kind of like, oh, okay, well, we'll just stick around here till I have to leave. And it seems these days that there's all kinds of quality content out there, specifically around Python, but other languages and technologies as well. Uh, just looking through your your YouTube channel and all of the, you know, we, we've got MongoDB and Python and Python for .NET developers. Um, before the show started, we were talking about Blazor and WebAssembly. I mean, there's all kinds of things out there to learn how to do, how to program, how to program effectively, how to program, dare I say, properly getting good resources rather than here's how to hack something together. It's, it's here's how to get started. Here's how to take baby steps. Here's how to get more complex and more, uh, more powerful programs together. I'm a big fan of like the holistic information, right? Not hunting around stack overflow. Like some people are happy to just like piece stuff together till it works. And I, I kind of want to see the whole picture and the why and the background. And you're right. There are so many things like that. YouTube is a great source. I mean, when I began in the late 90s, I guess, more or less into like professional full-time programming type stuff, it was a book and Usenet. And if you didn't like the answer you got or you couldn't make it work from the book, too bad. <laughs> Maybe you could get some sort of conversation going on Usenet. But there, there was not a lot of stuff. And I just really, really appreciate how much information is out there. And, you know, I think it's it's interesting to look back and you think of like, not much of that information was there. The tools to build it were pretty rudimentary. You know, it's easy to think, at least at that time, like, well, as this stuff gets easier, we'll need fewer programmers and this stuff will just have a few people like driving the tools and it'll work. And looking back, like there's so much more programming now than then. It's just like every time the tools and the information gets better, like we just go, all right, well, now we can solve bigger problems. What else can we do now instead of, you know, build this little thing with a button. Let's build this cool API that scales to, you know, millions of views or whatever. So, yeah, 
super cool time to be alive. Yeah, I took a I took a hard detour, uh, like uh, when I got out of high school uh, in the late '90s, and I was in my head. I loved I love programming. I'll, I you know I have since since I was like I don't know ten or something. But in my head, I was like, there's no way that a company is going to keep a developer on staff. Like they're going to, they're going to hire them. They're going to write an, a, a program and then they're going to let them all go. So I need to find something that's a bit more stable, no matter, you know, even though I love programming. <laughs> so I took a hard detour, went to the military, did a bunch of other stuff, um, came back like, you know, like 10 years later. And it's like, oh, actually, I guess they do need to keep the programmers on full time. And, <laughs> There might um, be some sticking power to this whole thing. <laughs> yeah, so uh, it definitely it definitely was a different world back then. And do you remember uh, with the books, like the examples never actually worked. You type them in, <laughs> and they never actually compile. And you had nobody would test them. They would just type them up, and maybe they got them right, and maybe they didn't. Yeah, it was. Oh my yeah. goodness. 90% of those books was just troubleshooting the code that was provided for you and trying to figure out what was gone wrong, which is a good lesson, but not one you want while you're trying to trying to learn just how to how to do anything at all. <laughs> you're barely gr- grasping at straws to understand it. And they're like, yeah, and to debug our problem that we couldn't catch. The further along I get in my in my programming career, the the less I bother to actually learn the new things. Not that I'm not involved in them, but like, there's just so much. Uh, for instance, I'm writing an application uh, for a client right now in PHP. I don't know PHP, <laughs> but they wanted it, right? And you're like, all right, if, if you right. understand well, what we're getting into, here we go. Uh, all of their systems are Linux, and uh, it's being hosted on on you know, on an Apache server. So I was like, okay. We'll just go with the least friction. We'll do PHP. It'll be fine. You didn't want to um, say, uh, you know, uh, .NET Core? Sell them on the latest I, I cutting edge of that? I would to push that. <laughs> uh, I say Apache. It's actually uh, GoDaddy. So uh, .NET Core is not I see. necessarily so it's an like option. You get a, a admin, a, a wimpy admin panel over to it, not like a SSH. Yeah. Gotcha. And it's a shared server, so I, I don't really... but. You know, it, it runs PHP, so we'll just we'll just do PHP. Um, but like, I have Googled my way and copy pasted from the docs, and you know, like the application's coming together; it's all working. Um, and I feel like that's uh, all the new programming that I'm doing is kind of that way. I just accept that I don't know it, and that I'm not going to know uh, you know all of it or enough of it to actually accomplish anything. So I'm just going to have to use the internet as a reference and go from there. That's just the new way to, to program. And I think that, you know, like the the new people getting started today, the the kids, <laughs> that's more or less how they're just learning to program. You know, I need to do a thing. Oh, is there a package for it? Let me check. There is a package for it. Cool. Oh, that one's got 5.6 million downloads. I'll get that package. Everybody, it must be good. And then, okay, how do I, how do, I do a thing? And then, you know, oh, Stack Overflow says... Here's how you do a thing with that package. And then they've got an application. And when they tell you what the application does, they're like, oh, yeah, it's a, it's a doorbell application and accesses this camera. It reads, uh, checks to see if there's a face in the camera view, and then it'll let you know that you've got a package at your door. And, and you know, like, I started with C, C++ in the 90s, and my head goes, 
<laughs> you know, they did it in an afternoon because that's just the way that programming is going these days. Right. The the building blocks are just they're just bigger and they just they accomplish more. The building blocks used to be, well, I have a data structure like a dictionary and I have a loop. Now the building blocks are I have a thing I call it and it tells me what's in the picture. Yeah. I do think though, Clayton, that it's worth like just pointing out that you still applied a lot of your programming skills that you learned in C++ and C Sharp and whatever else you're doing, right? The, the way to break down the problem, like, okay, it's going to need to do X, Y, and Z. That means pages like this and this. And then there's probably a database or there's an API. And those experiences are, are really interesting when you think about like beginners versus expert or experienced developers. It's not necessarily that you've done it before, but you've You've seen like, well, these are kind of the pieces I need to work with. Let me see what PHP has to offer in like a database access piece or a API piece, right? Yeah, it's the, um, well, so like I know the core of programming. I know I understand programming and I've been around the technology long enough to know that, you know, there are these parts of an application. There are these things that the computer can do and I can apply that when I'm looking up something. And that's, that probably is the the biggest difference between a junior and a senior right now is just I know programming and it doesn't matter what language it is. It doesn't matter what system I'm accessing. I, I can figure it out relatively quickly. Whereas, you know, the junior programmer may not know that that's even a thing that they can do. That doesn't necessarily stop them from asking Google if it's something they can do, which, you know, sometimes gives them a bit of a, uh, you know, a leg up. But that's that's the separation anymore the the people who have been programming for a long time understand programming and when they do run into a problem they know how to troubleshoot it how to debug it and the newer person might still be struggling with that aspect you know they can call a library but if that library doesn't do what they need it to do they might run into a problem whereas that's where the senior level person can be like oh yeah uh do this never mind try a different library you know whatever and then once you know how to do that thing, you're the go-to guy for, for that thing. Like, Michael, you, you mentioned that you don't want to be called on to, to do the database stuff, but you've got tons of videos out there on MongoDB and Python. So <laughs> apparently at some point you became... I, eventually I had to break down and do it. It's true. I mean, that was early days. I, um, now, I'm still a fan of the NoSQL databases. I, I think document databases are just a thing of beauty. I so love them. Man, I'm feeling old. Like eight or nine years ago, I was talking to a friend of mine and I was lamenting pushing relational ORMs type stuff to production. I'm just like, I I hate doing the migrations and the downtime and just, uh, he's like, well, why are you doing that? I'm like, well, because I need a database. Why are you like, he's a programmer. I'm like, what, what do you mean? Why am I doing this? You know why I'm doing this. He's like, why don't you just use Mongo or something like that? I'm like, what is this? How does this work? And yeah, so I'm a big fan of, of those because they kind of adapt a little bit more, right? We almost never do migrations these days. Like I, I would say it's probably been two years since I've done anything that will count as a migration, maybe longer. And we, uh, we do live coding streams on Wednesday evenings as well, working on some personal projects. And I, I believe this week we're going to work on Clayton's Blazor CMS project with a MongoDB backend. Um, and just picking that up and, and getting the just basic commands together has been incredible because we've been able to make pretty significant progress relatively quickly. Yeah, that's that's super cool. Clayton, how are you talking to MongoDB? Is there like a um, 
an API, a web API backend or? Yeah, it is. It is a web API backend. Uh, and then the web API is using the um, just the core Mongo uh, NuGet packages for for it. Yeah, that's beautiful. I mean, I do the equivalent thing in Python with uh, something called Mongo Engine and and some of the other things. But it's basically you know map classes to the database. It's it's beautiful. Yeah, it's it's like an ORM for Mongo. <laughs> I know there's you know without the relational part, but yeah, I'm still I still structure everything. Like I've you know I've been my brain has been relational mapping things for twenty years, so I have trouble breaking that mindset. Yeah, the magic about the document databases or the the right mindset, I believe, is they're really, really fantastic when they're focused on serving a single application. If all sorts of different apps with different needs and different query patterns come in, all of a sudden it gets really hard to think, well, what should the structure be like? But if you're like, well, we always get this page, and when we get this, we have these other things. You're like, oh, we'll just embed that thing and the other thing, and then you just already have everything you need. The more varied the questions become, the harder the the modeling becomes yeah uh for this particular app it's it's fairly straightforward that a document database made more sense um each data structure represents a page and the things on that page um and it can be you know nested down just as far as you might want to go so uh it, it makes sense to do it that way but if we were doing any kind of crud application i my my head would just be like oh that's got to be sql it just has to be. <laughs> I hear you. I've had that conversation <laughs> a lot. I'm, I'm super happy with the document database stuff, but it does take some getting used to, and it doesn't have a clear formula. Like, what you're going to do is these are the basic ideas, and you do third normal form, and you create these relationships, and you know you got it right. There's not a clear way to know that you got it right in document databases. Before we started recording, we had mentioned Blazor and WebAssembly, and of course we've mentioned Clayton's Blazor CMS project. And Michael, you had mentioned maybe there's some things in the Python world that are similar or experimenting with WebAssembly or what, what's, what's the story there? So I think there's a lot of interesting stuff and WebAssembly is at its, at the kernel of these, these interesting ideas. Like we've been beholden to JavaScript since, I don't know, 1991 or whenever. It's been a really long time, 90s, since Maybe it was later, but anyway, it's been around for a long time and it's, it just shocks me that it's the only way of programming a browser. Like if I want to create a desktop app, I got a lot of options. If I want to create a web API, the problem I have is there are so many choices, even the journal, like, do I do Python or .NET? Well, once you choose that, then how many like different pieces are there to decide? And the most important application broadly, at least in terms of usage, there's like one programming language and it's, it's okay, but it's not, you know, it doesn't clearly live above all the others in like its attributes, right? So I think WebAssembly is really interesting for a couple of reasons. One, I think it's really interesting that it has this possibility to bring forward other programming models into the browser and no one has done it better than Microsoft and the Blazor project. Right. I've seen a bunch of attempts. Like, There's some really interesting stuff happening in the Python space as well. Um, I've talked to some of the core developers. They're, they're like, what if we could rewrite the core of Python, which is C Python, so it's actually written in C. Um, what if we could write that in Rust and then compile that to WebAssembly? Then all of a sudden, 
you might have Python in the browser, much like you have C Sharp in the browser, right? That would be amazing. And basically anything that can be compiled to C, more or less, like without dependency on, say, I don't know, a car that is trying to drive or whatever, like it can be put into the browser, right? Like the compilers from C into WebAssembly are pretty interesting. And so I think there's a lot of interesting stuff. There. There's also interesting trade-offs for one cool library in one language being automatically used through WebAssembly. So for example, in the Python space, I cannot remember what it's called. I, I'm sorry, people can email me and I can track it down if they really, really care. But there's a library that does the opposite of what you might think WebAssembly does. Like WebAssembly typically lets you run something in the browser, but it's a library that lets you run WebAssembly packages on your desktop or on your server, right? So if I've got like say a C-sharp blazer, a C-sharp WebAssembly comp compilation bit, some Rust stuff, and then some Python code, I could put those all together and actually work with Rust, C-sharp, and Python all on the same project using WebAssembly as the intermediary, which is also kind of an interesting potential there, right? So I don't know. I'm really excited to see what is coming from this uh, I think it's going to crack open some interesting stuff. My understanding is it's some of the limitations are like the interop with the DOM and the WebAssembly code is still somewhat clunky and most importantly slow because uh, there's a lot of safeguards between, well, just straight compiled C code and your browser, right? Which I guess there probably should be. But I, I don't think we're there yet, but I think that there's a lot of possibilities for you know languages to get along better and share cool aspects of each other using WebAssembly. I, um, when Blazor was being uh, developed while it was still in um, experimental mode, I went and I was like, I'm curious what the competition is, you know, where the competition is. And I found uh, like a WebAssembly project in Rust. I think I found one other one, but I can't remember what language. But the, the one in Rust was so... I mean, it, it, like, if, if Blazor is a newborn baby the one in rust was the zygote you know it was like <laughs> it was just so so early on that right like that barely you know, proof like of concept believe, type thing yeah i can't believe how early blazer is to the party um yeah when i saw steve sanderson give that talk i'm just like the landscape has changed like this is it blew my mind when i saw it. i'm like all right how do we how do we convince people in the, the Python space for my thing? So I don't have to write necessarily more JavaScript or I can like do more. I'm like, how do we get that over there? There's just so many opportunities for taking your code and running it in other places and code interrupt and, and whatnot that, man, it's, it's neat. And I think having a front end framework like what you're talking about is it's very exciting. And honestly, it makes me jealous. Well, to be fair, Steve Sanderton is is not human. I mean, <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, definitely. I, I do have a prediction that that um, very, very soon JavaScript as a language that you actually program in is going to die. It's, I mean, it's just going to, you know, get geriatric. And then, uh, you know, all the new stuff will be there will be a, an explosion and maybe five to 10 years from now, there will be an explosion of, of WebAssembly based conversions from existing languages and possibly even new, yeah. new languages that people will will be making. So I, I have two thoughts for you, and I, I kind of agree. One, have either of you heard of this video? It's about 15 minutes, and it is one of the most informative ones on JavaScript ever, but also absolutely hilarious. It's called The Birth and Death of JavaScript. 
It's by Gary Barnhart, and it's the proper pronunciation of JavaScript because it's in the future and they don't fully know how to pronounce JavaScript. <laughs> and it's like there's, it's the the mapping of like from nineteen uh, from uh, twenty twenty or twenty eighteen into like 2040 of what happens in the programming languages and these weird convolutions that JavaScript goes through. There's been like a nuclear war and it's like shut down the internet for a while and people came back with, it was really, it's, that doesn't sound funny, but it's actually a really, really funny story, but it's also super interesting on thinking about things like Asm.js and the foundations of like compiling stuff to the browser. So what else, what's, what's next? What are the exciting things coming down the road? There's been a big friction, I guess is the right way to put it. Not quite a roadblock, but uh, some hesitancy in that space because there's been this Python 2 versus Python 3 upgrade. They went and said, we're going to make, we've done some things wrong in Python 2. We're sorry. We're going to fix it in a slightly breaking way. Uh, a few things breaks, like strings, some exception handling and stuff. Uh, we're going to start over with this almost the same, but not exactly the same language. And that's actually caused a ton of challenges of people adopting some of the new ideas for like, like eight years, like Python got async and await and people are like, I, I don't really, I can't use that because I'm working on stuff from 2010. You're like, what, why are you doing that? Right. <laughs> but finally they've moved past that. They retired Python two, And in that world, we're seeing a lot of really interesting stuff come along with things like taking full advantage of async and await. So there's actually some like type, almost like, like semi-static type stuff being applied for large-scale Python stuff to make it uh, a little more, you can track down the bugs like, you know, like a compiler might uh, and so on. So there's a lot of interesting stuff that's being created, like a ton of new interesting web frameworks that are just going, like now we have these new ideas, what can we do with them? There are projects, I remember the second thing I was going to say about the WebAssembly, there are projects that are taking advantage of WebAssembly like PyIodide, which is something that takes the C Python runtime plus some of the C-based analysis libraries from data science like NumPy and Pandas and so on and compiles them and runs those in the browser. So there's, there's some interesting stuff coming along there. In general, gosh, I don't know. I just, um, Clayton, you talked about some of that machine learning and C++ and like the mind exploding. I remember 20 years ago, it felt like artificial intelligence and machine learning was something that was one, extremely rudimentary, and two, was always 30 years in the future. It's like, are we going to have fis uh, fusion or meaningful AI that I can chat with first? I'm not sure. It's a toss-up, right? And it was always about like, okay, well, I, what, the way we're going to know if you have uh, proper AI is we're going to set up a chat bot and you can chat with it. If you can't tell if it's human, like it passes the Turing test and so it's real. And, and then somewhere like a few years pass and then cars are driving around on their own. And it's just like the gap between those two things is so giant that I, I can't believe where we have gone between there. So I don't really know what's next, but I think it's going to be really interesting to see some of those sort of, the computer will figure it out for you, change or influence software development, right? How do you step a debugger through a deep neural net like I mean, you can, but it doesn't tell you how it's deciding, right? It just, well, here's some weights, and then it says it's a, a dog. Like, well, if it's supposed to be a cat, how do I debug it, right? I think there's going to be some interesting mind shifts uh, around that in, in general. So we'll be sure to include all the links for everything in the show notes, but are there specific resources that you might want to point out to listeners? 
either directly for Python just getting started or, or anything that we spoke about? Most of my resources are in the Python space, so I, I'll tell you those first and see if I can think of anything else. So I have my two podcasts, TalkPython.fm and PythonBytes.fm, and those are really interesting and easy ways to get into the ecosystem. Yeah, I, I'll run this really quick by you guys. When I first started the show, I thought only experts would drop in. Like, who's going to listen to like the internals of like a ORM? Like, only people were really into this stuff, right? And I got a bunch of people who said, "I'm starting to understand what you said. I've been listening for two months, and it's starting to make sense." I'm like, well, "Why were you listening? This is so weird. I mean, that's awesome. Thank you." But people were using it as language immersion. Like, you want to learn Portuguese? You move to Brazil, and eventually you'll know it, right? And so I think you know, if, if people just want to kind of swim in the water, I think listening to the podcast is really great. I've a bunch of online courses at training.talkpython.fm. People can check those out. There's some beginner stuff, some advanced stuff, some web stuff, and data, some data science stuff and so on. And yeah, uh, those are the ones I got. Uh, what has been helpful in your career that you might share with those just getting started or those looking to level up their careers? I think there's a lot of things that as somewhat introverted techie people, we might not gravitate towards. So, for example, public speaking. I don't know how you guys felt about it. When I was in college, I had to take a speech class. I didn't like it. I didn't want to get up there and talk about some random thing that I wasn't inspired about. I, I care about programming. I'm happy to talk about that, but like random stuff. But here's the thing. What I found was when I started doing things like presenting at meetups or submitting conference talks or those types of things, or even you know, agreeing to be on a podcast, it really opened up possibilities. I made tons more connections than the three people that I knew at work and people who were really passionate, you know, about whatever it was that I was talking about. And so I encourage people to do something uncomfortable and put themselves out there. Right. I mean, maybe right now is a great time. There's a lot of stuff wrong with right now, but it's a great time for this because so many user groups are virtual anyway. Like I would never suggest that I speak at a Florida, uh, you know, the Tampa meetup or whatever, because the cost of me getting there, which I would love to go there, but the cost of me getting there for a one hour speech, it often doesn't make sense, right? But now it makes a lot of sense. I can do Zoom from <laughs> wherever, right? And so I think there's a great opportunity for people to to expand beyond just the the team that they're in and really grow. And you just get so many opportunities for new jobs, new career advancement, uh, new ideas that you exchange with people, new contacts you can get. Like, John, if you're stuck, you can say, oh, but that guy at the user group, he was doing more than me. I'm going to ask him, right? So that's my advice is to to take some steps towards that public speaking thing, even though it's probably not super comfortable for us. Yeah, that's really good. A lot of people really should follow that advice. That's a great way to, um, uh, if nothing else, give back. Uh, do you have any social media accounts that you'd like to share with our listeners? I'm all about the Twitter. I feel like that's where a lot of tech people are. I have like a Facebook page and stuff, but uh, for the like the podcast, but uh, twitter.com slash mkennedy is, is probably the place to go. Great. Michael, really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. Hey guys, it's been great. Uh, really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for having me. That was Michael Kennedy. Michael is the founder and host of Talk Python to Me, a weekly podcast about Python and related software development topics. He's an entrepreneur, a father of three girls, a husband, a student, and a teacher. If you like this episode, please like, rate, and review on iTunes.
Find show notes, blog posts, and more at sixfiguredev.com. And catch us live each week on Twitch, and be sure to follow us on Twitter at SixFigureDev. This has been another episode of the Six Figure Developer Podcast, helping others reach their potential. I am John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash.